morning. It is Tuesday, July 7th, and this is Community Pulse, your local report on the coronavirus pandemic in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse Monday through Thursday at 9 a.m. on KOPN, and all episodes can be found online at KOPN.org and now on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Today on Community Pulse, our host, Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, will cover a variety of topics, including Columbia's mask requirement approved by city council yesterday evening, new stories of people around the world who have COVID symptoms that won't go away for months and months, and more than 200 experts urge the World Health Organization to acknowledge that coronavirus is most likely airborne. Dr. Alleman is a local family physician and host of Your Health Matters here on KOPN. She joins us by phone this morning. Welcome, Dr. Alleman. Good morning, Mallory. Um, Thank you so much for that great introduction. Um, We have a lot to talk about this (laughs) morning. Yes, we do. Um, So uh, just to go through the the statistics, uh, total uh, in the world, we've got 11,740,000 cases with... um, 541,000 deaths and six and a half million people recovering. In the United States, we're at 3 million uh, cases with almost 133,000 deaths. And I'm going to say that it is really disorienting to wake up this morning and Matthew Holloway, um, data is not available because he had internet access problems last night. So we are, I'm going with uh, some more data from some other sources that have a little bit of a delay. So the state health department, I think deliberately has about a 72 hour delay because otherwise the the numbers start to change when things trickle in or we get clarification about numbers. Um, And so the Missouri Hospital Association is also doing that, um, uh, kind of uh, evaluation. And I think I just wanted to say that in general, what we're seeing is that cases are increasing across the state, hospitalizations, intensive care unit bed uh, is increasing, and yet we're still seeing, you know, 30 to 4%, 30 to 40% availability across the state of hospital beds, ICU beds, and ventilators. In the city of Columbia and Boone County, um, as of July 6th, uh, the county, this, uh, the Boone County City of Columbia Health Department sent out a, a press release last night saying that um, there were 15 new uh, positive cases reported as of Monday, and their um, total, there have been 513 cases in Boone County, 166 of which are currently active. There are also 414 contacts quarantined due to COVID-19 exposure. And what this means is that more and more it is going to be true that um, those of us in Boone County will know someone or know someone who knows someone who has tested positive or is a contact of, of someone who tested positive and is in quarantine. And I think that I want to encourage people to, as best possible, stay grounded, stay calm, wear your face coverings, wash your hands, take your vitamin D, 2,000 international units every day, um, and generate and cultivate a cheerful confidence that your body can handle a virus. Um, not, uh, Not to be cavalier, but to just know that most of us will survive this. Uh, and um, uh, anyway that we need to do that. And um, I'm also, one of the things that's a concerning trend 
is the positivity rate for Boone County residents was almost 16% for the week of July 26, June 26th to July 2nd. And that's um, a really significant difference from the rate that remained about 1.4% up until June 12th. So that means that um, of the tests, we, if we take the number of tests that are pos- turned positive and divide it by the number of tests that we do, we get 15.7%. Um, and this is one of those things that's sort of a, a trend to look at. It is true that if we do more testing, we will identify more cases. But uh, so the question is, how do we space tease out um, increasing cases in a, the setting of increasing numbers of tests as to know, like, are we just finding the fevers because we're taking more temperatures or are there just more fevers out there? And these, uh, the test positivity results are what I sort of our best uh, criteria for that plus hospitalizations and deaths. Um, until we get the lovely information from the wastewater screening that is going to be starting this week. Gotcha. So, Dr. Alleman, this might be a good time for folks who do need a test or, you know, are, are experiencing some symptoms. What are their options right now? Right. So your options are to call your own health care provider, your primary care provider, if you have a family doctor and a family nurse practitioner, an internal medicine specialist, uh, your child's pediatrician, um, um, they all uh, licensed uh, primary care providers especially care providers, can write an order for a uh, test. So this is, you don't need special training or special permission. Many of us are operating under uh, requests from the folks who are um, uh, struggling really hard to, I don't know if they're struggling, they're working very hard to make sure this is available, to make sure that we are really thoughtful about the tests we order. So we're trying to do that. If people do not have a primary care provider or if they are feeling like they'd like some other options, muhealthcare.org has a process where you can go through it and get either a um, an order from a telehealth visit or if you are symptomatic and you present yourself to their mobile screening, their nurses there are have standing orders that if you have certain symptoms, they will test you. And at Boone Hospital, you they will test um, anybody in their mobile setting with a physician order. And if you do not have a physician who you can who can help you with that, you can call my office four four three seven zero seven zero. And if all you need is an order, we can do that for you without charge. If you you need medical advice about it, then there's a, a $20 charge to talk to me for about 10 minutes to get that uh, process going. So um, that's the way that I know. And uh, I'm sure there are similar uh, ways to get tested at the Jefferson City Hospitals, and I um, don't have that information right uh, on the top of my head. And do you know, are these tests um, covered by insurance or by other funds? or? So, Right now, um, both the university and Boone Hospital are making Herculean efforts, and the tests have not. There's been no charge to the person getting tested. Uh, People's health insurance is being charged. And um, so I don't know what's going to change, whether that's going to change. It's my understanding that there have been some changes in policy on the federal level uh, made by the, the, um, 
Trump administration, uh, initially there was a statement that um, that required health insurance to cover uh, COVID testing without a, a deductible or a copay, I think. And it's my understanding, I'm hearing rumors that that may be changing or that may have changed. There also have has been actual federal money to support the cost of these tests because they are not free to the hospitals or to the labs. And um, it's my understanding that that is, you know, when uh, our president said that he wanted to slow down testing, apparently that was followed up with a change in policy, that there was a diminishment in the amount of federal support for testing. So I, it's at this point, um, the testing is no charge to the person who's getting tested at the point of service, which from a public health standpoint, I think is essential for us to get through this. Um, and I am hoping that will not change. I know that uh, the health department director, Stephanie Browning, at last night's city council meeting also pointed out that there may be a need for funding for the two hospitals in town who are right now taking the uh, hit for the cost of the test. Gotcha. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that explanation. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it, these things are always more complicated than, than we wish they were, would be. Um, so I wanted to get into, I wanted to send a thank you out to Mike Hagan, who's the host of Open Mic on Friday mornings. Um, he has been so uh, generous in letting me just take over that spot early on the in the uh, epidemic, and I'm so glad we were able to sort of move back and realize that we didn't need five days a week. Um, he has stayed in dialogue with me, and it's been a, an interesting one, and he has sent me several um, articles. So this is a articles people send me, primarily Mike Hagan is the source of them. Um, so one is, uh, you know, a summary about the fact that many people who are calling themselves long haulers, these are people who um, have been diagnosed with COVID-19 infection and are still experiencing weakness, cough, intermittent fevers, uh, weeks or months after their uh, initial diagnosis so that people are describing uh, getting better, feeling good, and then uh, having uh, uh, severe fatigue or even a re return of fever uh, uh, intermittently over days and weeks and months. And this brings up questions about, like, are they infectious when this happens? And have they gotten reinfected? Um, are they probably not because they, they don't get as sick as they did before? Um, what is, you know, what can we do to help them? How long is this going to last? And are there therapies that might be helpful? And uh, that is an a area of emerging uh, science. And sadly, we are sort of needing to focus most of our energy and attention on taking care of the people who have, who are getting sick right now and are currently needing um, medical support to survive. But I am confident that we will be turning our questions to how to help these people with uh, the longer-term illness. And then there may be questions about how do we determine if uh, how people qualify for disability support and those kinds of things. Um, so that is an interesting thing. It is not the majority of people, but it is still a possibility. So. And are these people, um, I couldn't tell in the article, maybe you have some insight, are they getting tested? Like, would they show a positive COVID test if they um, went and got tested with these symptoms? 
That is a great question, and I don't know the answer to that. I am presuming that they are no longer shedding virus, but I imagine okay. that that is something that varies from one person to another. Okay. Um, okay, and then uh, back, I guess the best summary is we're still developing vaccines. <laughs> Some of them are into, you know, and there's, I think, almost 200 vaccines under development right now at various uh, points of development. So um, the phase one trials are usually given to, you know, a dozen or so people um, to see if they are safe and if they generate measurable antibodies. And then the phase two trials are really to see effectiveness. And honestly, what we're doing is we're going to, we're vaccinating more like several hundred people in areas of high uh, community spread, because what we want to see is whether there's a difference in who gets the, the sickness. Um, so we are not deliberately exposing anybody. We are, you know, but we are allowing, we are vaccinating people who we expect to have a risk of being exposed. So some of these are healthcare providers who are caring for COVID-19 patients, et cetera. And those are, that's sort of where we are. There's a couple of vaccines that are now in phase two clinical trials. And then um, I am, I, I think the next what we do is we carefully have a larger population get vaccinated. And then once we release them, uh, you know, fully to, to be um, administered to the public, that's when we really get the large data. And I hope that as we're doing this, we'll be paying very close attention to uh, safety and efficacy. Um, and, you know, so then that brings us to um, what do we do? What about, if you keep hearing about herd immunity and immunity passports, uh, you know, like these are antibody tests. Like we're doing these, we're doing community antibody testing among certain populations of people to try to see whether that will help us determine whether, how many people got this virus, had either no or minimal symptoms, or were really sick but for whatever reason did not get a test during the, the peak of their, te their um, illness, the nasal swab um, messenger RNA uh, uh, test. Um, but like then they developed antibodies. So that would give us an idea about how many of those people were there who, for whatever reason, didn't get diagnosed as active cases. But in retrospect, oh, that really was a, 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 a case of the disease. And this is fraught with so many questions. So one of them is how good are the tests? And in a um, understandable rush to develop tests, the FDA initially didn't allow testing to be developed and then um, uh, made testing, made, allowed an emergency authorization, emergency use authorization process, which allowed a lot of companies, I don't know, a handful of companies to develop antibody tests, which now that we are doing the more careful work um, may not have been as uh, um, rigorous a test as we would have wanted. That they may they they may be telling some people that they have antibodies who didn't actually have antibodies, and it is hard because we don't really know what's the gold standard um, to test against. So there's all of that, and then there is recent uh, publication uh, that um, 
some antibodies be, may may wane, like they, we may have very low levels of antibodies, especially in an asymptomatic case, and that some people um, who had a mild case may have no antibodies detected within four months. And the thing to remember is that this, if this was if this is a disease that um, people can get it and they um, recover from it and then they have no protection from it in the future, like it wouldn't even cause a milder illness and maybe we'd see a much lower death rate, it would be an unusual illness. The immune system of mammals is really very complex and very effective. So I am uh, thinking that we are going to see um, uh, reduced incidence of disease once people once we get a certain percentage of our population has experienced this uh, infection. And I hope that I'm not wrong about that. But actually, like the level of protection, you know, for example, people who get chickenpox, we just presume that nobody gets chickenpox twice. And so if you are a healthcare practitioner and you have documented history of having had chickenpox, then we just, if there's chickenpox case in the hospital, we presume that you can take care of that person without getting sick yourself or without spreading it. We just have confidence in that. Uh, back in the day, we had confidence that if you had a measles, a case of measles, that you just weren't ever going to get it again and you could care for people with measles and not get it. I don't, and then there's the common cold or influenza, which you can get several times in your lifetime, but we presume that when you get it in the future, you might have a less severe illness, but we don't presume that you can safely care for somebody and not spread it. So I'm going to guess that uh, SARS-CoV-2 is going to be um, somewhere in between those things. Um, but I think people had hoped that they could get an antibody test, get an immunity passport, and then they could do all of the things. Mm -hmm. that they could travel internationally. They could take care of sick relatives. They could... Um, go to bars, um, whatever, all the things that we want to do. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're going to get that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with the vaccines, Dr. Alleman, um, do you suspect that when one is developed, it'll be pretty accessible? I mean, is this going to be something that um, anyone can go to their doctor and get? Or I don't know. Any any thoughts on what that will look like? Yeah, so that's a beautiful question. There are lots of people who are trying really hard to talk about what would be the wisest, most equitable way to begin to distribute a vaccine when it becomes available. And I know there are lots of people who are on a wide wide spectrum. There are some of the families that I care for and the, my friends who are really concerned and don't believe that any vaccines are ever safe and they are very afraid that they will be required to vaccinate themselves or their children and are that that's a, that horrifies them. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who, um, you know, would sign up for the phase two or phase three trial just so that they could get a vaccine. Right. And then there's a lot of us in the middle who are ready to get a vaccine, going to roll up our sleeve when it's our turn, but aren't feeling like we need to be at the front of the line. So the question has to do with cost, who pays for it, how it's distributed. I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, the first group we should uh, vaccinate are people who work in hospitals and our first responders, um, and then uh, people who work in, say, uh, group care facilities and um, uh, 
people who live or work in uh, dorms or prisons and other um, collective uh, uh, living situations. Um, and I think it's going to depend a lot on where the vaccine comes from and how well we can get along. So if the United States develops the first vaccine, I think we've already clearly said that we're going to use it on ourselves first and that we won't share it with other countries until we've vaccinated all of our people. Um, I would guess that that is going to uh, encourage a, a reciprocal response from other countries. Mm-hmm. And all of those things are understandable. And yet I I am hoping that uh, thought leaders will come up with better solutions than mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And we're already seeing that. I mean, with last week, Trump boasting that he bought the entire world's supply of remdesivir. Did you read that? I did not read that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess hoarding is, is something that people that extends into the public health sphere as well. It, it does. And I think it's a really human response is if there's a short supply of something that would enhance my survival, mm-hmm. I'm going to go for it and I am going to get it from me and mine. And, um, we see this with many, many things. And I, it takes a lot of um, integrity to rise above that initial response. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so there are smart people who are already thinking about this and, and arguing about it. And I think that we ought to pay attention to the conversation and encourage our leaders, the ones who have to listen to us, to, to do that, mm-hmm. to focus on uh, what makes sense and what's equitable. Mm-hmm. Dr. Alman, do you have any... Um any comments on the city council meeting last night? Were you able to tune in to parts of it? I was, and main concert, uh, comment on it, and that is that Jenny is going to be my guest tomorrow uh, calling in. Now, she's going to be driving, and we're hoping we can finish the conversation before she falls out of um, uh, cell range. Okay. But she is going. She and I are going to talk about the specifics, but short. the short answer is uh, last night at uh, five minutes before midnight, um, on Jenny's birthday, uh, she got her birthday wish, and that is we got a an emergency authorization for a masking ordinance, which will not go into effect until 5 p.m. on Friday and has uh, many exemptions and uh, several amendments were passed last night. So we're going to go over the details. But mainly what it means is that if you are indoors and not able to be six feet apart, then and in a public space, you are required to wear a face, a cloth face covering that does not have holes in it, that covers your mouth and nose in the city of Columbia. And then one other topic that we didn't yeah. get to yet. Um, the I, I'd love to talk just briefly about um, that letter from over 200 experts urging the World Health Organization to oh, acknowledge right. coronavirus is airborne because um, when I first heard that, I was like, well, didn't we kind of already know that? I mean, we're wearing masks. What's the difference between airborne and these droplets? So right. could you... I, we This is a lot of argument about the size of droplets. Okay. Okay. So the question is really whether um, we need to be concerned just about our own... Um, not and loogies, you know, the big, the big bits, mm-hmm. or are we, do you need to worry about these things that are vapors and hanging in the air for a long time? So for example, measles is transmitted by aerosols. And, and that means that a person with measles can walk through a large international airport 
And I think for like three hours, people who subsequently walk through that airport who are still who are not immune to measles can get it. So that and then there's the droplets. So things like meningococcal meningitis, I hope I'm getting this right, many diseases. You really, like when the public health people are doing contact tracing and they're saying, well, did the person cough on you? And did you feel moisture on your face? Okay, well, if you did, now we're concerned about you. And if you did not actually feel droplets hit your face, then maybe you didn't actually get exposed. So we can see how those are two very different uh, public health situations and would require different rules, um, guidances, uh, regulations, uh, public health messages, travel advisories, et cetera. And I think that what we're seeing is it's somewhere in between, that you don't actually have to feel the, the fluid hit your face, but we we aren't seeing transmission that I know of in the hours later once the person has left the space. Okay. So this, I think that we're really arguing a lot over some words, um, and I understand why. Um, but I think that this is why I think that we're getting closer to the fact that we're more on the respiratory droplet and less on the aerosol side, um, and that's why masks are seem to be helpful is because they do slow down those big droplets, um, but you can see that aerosols do come through and around the sides of the masks. So I think that these are the kinds of uh, conversations we're going to continue to have. But, you know, the whole what gets listed in headlines is it's airborne. Like, duh, we've known that it travels Mm -hmm. through the air. But what we're really trying to do is make a distinction about whether it lingers in the air for hours or whether it's really more like uh, the other person has to be present. You have to have, like, seen them. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Anything else that you'd you'd like to cover today in our last I think few minutes? <laughs> I think that's enough, Mallory. <laughs> I I am so looking forward to the conversation with Jenny Chadwick tomorrow. Our uh, policy uh, expert is going to be um, helping us uh, break down this policy and and help us figure out what it is that we need to do as businesses and and members of the community to um, to. Uh, uh, comply with ordinances and be uh, our best uh, responsible citizens. So I'll look forward to that conversation. And thank you so much. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye. That's it for today's edition of Community Pulse. You can catch Community Pulse Monday through Thursday at 9 a.m. and later in the day at KOPN.org and now on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. As always, we want to know what questions, comments, and insights you have related to coronavirus. Leave a message for us at 573-874-1139, email gm at kopn.org, or you can find us on social media, Facebook or Instagram. Up next is an abridged version, uh, version, version of background briefing, followed by a brief music break. Thanks so much for listening to KOPN 89.5, your volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station here in Mid-Missouri.